Good morning, church. It is good to worship with you this morning as we wrap up our Christmas week. I hope that you were able to enjoy your Christmas, and I hope you're able to spend time with family. I know this has been a hard season for many people in many different ways, but for those of you that are joining us online and worshiping with us at home, I know what you're thinking. I know you're, you're, you're looking at your screen, maybe you're looking at your phone, and you're thinking, man, Buster looks really good this morning, right? I mean, that camera must take 20 years off of him. Just kidding. I, I could say that because I have more gray, I think, in my beard, but... Um, for, uh, in all seriousness, though, for those of you that are worshiping at home and who have not been able to join us, maybe you have a pre-existing condition and you need to be more careful or you're in an age bracket that requires you to be more careful in this tough COVID season that we're in, as a pastor of this church, we want to let you know that you are loved, that you are very much missed, and we're praying for you, and we can't wait to fellowship with you again, hopefully very soon. So we miss you, and we can't wait for you to be back. Uh, for those of you that are here, uh, it's, it's really good to be with you live and in person. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to follow along. If you have an app, go ahead and click there if you would. We're going to read through it in just a moment. When Buster asked if I was free uh, for this Sunday to preach, this was a text that I was personally studying at the time. And in a very real way, my prayer is that the Lord has brought us to this text this morning. So as we read Matthew 19, 16 to 30, I would like for you to be looking and listening for the three different audiences that we have in this text, the three levels, layers of people who are listening in on the conversation. Now, this is the story of the rich young ruler. If you are a part of have been a part of the church for a long time, or maybe you grew up in Sunday school, perhaps you're familiar with the story of the rich young ruler, but be listening and hear the different levels of audiences that are here in the text. So Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16, and behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you, what then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
All right, so three audiences that we have in this one telling of the story of the rich young ruler. The first is the rich young ruler himself. He's the first audience. Jesus is having a conversation. It's between the two of them. This rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what can I do to enter into heaven? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. Rich young ruler says, well, which ones? And Jesus lists off several of the Ten Commandments and adds in there, love your neighbor as yourself. And rich young ruler says, I've done these. What else do I lack? And Jesus says, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And then Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. So the rich young ruler is the first audience, but then it expands, it expounds, and you realize that the disciples are there present as well. And Jesus turns his attention from the rich young ruler to his disciples that are right there, and he explains this interaction that just happened. So the second audience is the disciples. The disciples are looking on, and Jesus says, it is really, really difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And astonished, the disciples say, well, how can this be? They don't understand how this makes sense. And Jesus replies and says, it's impossible. What we're talking about here is impossible for man. Only with God can these things be possible. And Peter pipes in, but we've left all of our things for you. And Jesus says, there is a reward coming. So the disciples are that second layer of audience. The third layer of audience, it, it, might be a trick question, but if you look in the last verse in our story, verse 30, see what it says. It says, but many who are first will be last in the last first. And this is a context clue, all right? First of all, this is the culmination of the conclusion and the application of what Jesus is saying in this particular moment. All right, he's, the story of the rich young ruler and his definition and his explanation to his disciples is summarized in this, and many who are first will be last. But what we begin to see when we look at the surrounding context in Matthew chapter 18, chapter 19, where we're at right now, and chapter 20, is that this is a body of teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples, and he has a point to this body of teaching. He's speaking of something that many scholars and commentators call the upside-down kingdom, that God, that Jesus Christ is the king his followers are his people, his word is the law, and Christ's kingdom on this earth is upside down from the world's kingdom. So therefore, the first will be last and the last will be first. All right, that's upside down from the world. Look with me at the following text, all right? The immediate next story in Matthew. It moves on to chapter 20, and it's the parable. All right, your Bible should have some head, headlines in it. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We're not going to go into that parable, but look at the last verse, verse 16, of how this parable ends. It says, and the last will be first, and the first will be last. So there's a connection, right? Jesus has this ongoing theme of first and last and last first, that there's a lastness concept that we are called to as believers on this earth so that we will be first or enter into the kingdom of heaven. Look at the next story. Matthew 20, verse 17, Jesus speaks of his own death. He says that he will be flogged and mocked and crucified, right? That's, that's lastness on this earth. So that why? He will be raised again on the third day, firstness. All right, look at the next story, a mother's request. This is a story where a mother actually walks up to Jesus and says, I want my boys on your right and left hand. What needs to happen 
to make sure that this, this comes to fruition, Jesus responds in verse 26, it will not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See, it's this ongoing first, last theme. But it's not just the text behind the story of the rich young ruler, but jump backwards to chapter 18, all right? This is important to look at if you can. Chapter 18, verse 1, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest, right? We want to be first in this life. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you would be the greatest, if you want to enter in the kingdom of heaven, you must become like a child. And then moving forward in verse 7, the temptation to sin. This is the story where Jesus says, it's better for you to cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. It's better for you to pluck out your eye if your eye is causing you to sin. It's better for you to be maimed on this earth, all right, this lastness idea, so that you can enter into heaven first, last first. All right, the next text. Moving forward in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, the disciples go up to Jesus and they say, how many times should I forgive my brother who is continuing to sin against me over and over? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. That you continue to forgive, that you put yourself last on this earth so that you can be first in the kingdom. So I wanted to go through these different examples to see that there's this backlog of discussion and teaching that Jesus has here of this upside down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. And so that makes us then read the story of the rich young ruler and say, what particularly are we supposed to learn about this upside down kingdom? There's something specific that Jesus is trying to tell us as the third audience, all right, the readers of Matthew, what is it particularly about the upside-down kingdom that he is trying to communicate with us through the story of the rich young ruler? That's the question that I want to explore and unpack this morning. So that's the question. What are we supposed to learn? How are we supposed to be last what is, what is explained to us by Jesus in this story with this upside-down kingdom? I think that there are three things that we can look at in this text as kind of a means of deductive reasoning, all right? Because this is a difficult text. But let's look at some of the things that we know for certain in the story of the rich young ruler. The first thing that we know for certain is that this story is about your possessions, all right? Jesus identifies possessions with the rich young ruler himself. Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, identifies this man as somebody who had great possessions. In Jesus' explanation to his disciples, he says, it's because of this guy's possessions that there's an issue with the whole question, how can I inherit eternal life? His disciples followed up by asking the question, well, what about us who have left our possessions? So this story is emphatically about possessions. Jesus is giving several different examples throughout Matthew 18, 19, and 20 about what it looks like for the believer to live in an upside-down kingdom, and this story is speaking about how a believer interacts with his possessions. Now, pause for confession time. I, I've gotten this text wrong many times as I've taught it over the years, and I don't say that with pride. I don't put that on my resume, but I specifically remember opening this story up to the rich young ruler, and I was on a missions trip. We were overseas, so I've gotten this wrong 
in America, and I've gotten it wrong overseas, I've gotten it wrong everywhere. And maybe you've heard it taught this way before, but I think this is a wrong interpretation. Maybe you've heard it said, and I've, I've said this before, but you know, the story here is about this guy who has this thing that's in between him and Jesus, you know? And for the rich young ruler, it was his stuff. And, and Jesus knew it, and so Jesus called it out, and the guy wasn't willing to get rid of his stuff for Jesus, and so he walked away sorrowful. So what's your stuff? Like, what's your thing, right? Have you ever heard that? You know, the moral of the story is, if it, is it your looks? Is it your career? Is it your hobbies? Is it your sports team? Just figure out what that thing is that's between you and Jesus and give it up to him so that you and him can walk hand in hand and kind of go mer- off merrily into the horizon. And that's not, that's not a wrong, that's not biblically inaccurate. I mean, yeah, if there's anything between you and Jesus, you need to, you need to sort that out. But that's not what the text is saying. Okay, so it can, be, it can be a right statement, but it's not what the text is saying. The text is speaking about our possessions. The second thing that we know for sure about this text, it says with clarity, the disciples are astonished and they say, how can this be? And Jesus says, this is impossible. So whatever it is that Jesus is asking us to do with our possessions is impossible for us to do. All right, so the second thing we know for sure is that this is a big calling. This is no little deal. There is great emphasis in this text on how hard this thing is that Jesus is calling us to do in his upside-down kingdom. He actually says it's impossible. And not only does he say it's impossible, but he, he gives this impossible scenario example of fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. This big, bulky, humpy camel through the minuscule eye. It says it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle the eye of a needle than for a man with great possessions to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I was raised in the church. Went to Sunday school all my life. My parents are believers. I came to faith at an early age. And I have this distinct memory of being in elementary school as a boy. I don't know if this is because I was a Christian Sunday school kid or because I was a boy and I liked explosions and action and all that kind of stuff. But I have this distinct memory hearing the story of the rich young ruler and hearing the example of a camel fitting through the eye of a needle and as a 10-year-old boy thinking, I think you could chop that camel up small enough and fit it through piece by piece the eye of the needle. Like, you know, the teacher is telling us the story like it's impossible, right? And Jesus says, this is impossible for man. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And I'm like, wait a minute, I got this. No, 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 it's not possible. I mean, I could, you know, small enough you can fit it through. Now, how, how interesting that, that inner Pharisee, even as a 10-year-old boy, was like, no, 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 I think that this, there's a way for this to be possible. Now, the second thing we know for sure about the text is Jesus is saying what he is asking you to do is impossible for man, only with God. Is this possible? The third thing that we see in this text, and this is in, uh, look at verse 29. It says, And anyone and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The third thing that we know for sure in this text is if we are able to do this impossible thing with our possessions that Jesus is calling us to do, we will be greatly rewarded in the life to come. That there is great, tremendous reward. Now, I think that this point in the text is often overlooked because 
We will spend time thinking about the rich young ruler, and he walked away sad. Does that mean that he never received Christ, and he ended up going to hell? And what about, are we really supposed to sell everything and all this stuff? But, the, but Jesus has, a, this is a glory to the story moment here. For those that have left houses, and mother and father, and brother and sister, and children, and lands for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. So let's take a moment and just let that sink in a little bit. Because we can't miss that. Because there is a, this isn't just a, hey, do this really tough, tough thing and deal with it. This is like, there's glory in here for you. What does it mean to receive a hundredfold? What does it mean to receive a hundredfold and to receive eternal life? It's hard to get my head around. We see categories here when it says homes and lands. You can call that a category of possessions. And you see... Uh, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children, a category of relationships. As I was studying this text, I was trying to get my head around, what does it mean to have a hundredfold more of these things? And I just thought about my relationship with my wife. I love my relationship with my wife. We are in a really sweet season. We laugh a lot together. We feel like we really have been on the same page. We like a lot of the same things. I miss her when she's gone. And if somebody were to come up to me and say, Danny, imagine a relationship with Lauren that's five times better than what you have right now. Just five. I would kind of think, "Mm, I'm having a hard time getting my head around that. I mean, mean, there's, there's things that we could do better. There are things that I could work on. There are ways that I could be more like Christ. I could serve. I mean, I mean, but five times better. I mean, it's already good. But what about 20 times better? What if you had a relationship with your wife that was 20 times? The idea here is that it's inconceivable, that you can't get your head around that, that a hundredfold return is the reward for those that are able to do with their possessions what Christ is calling us to do, that it's, 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 it's almost unspeakable. You can't get your head around that. So what we know for sure is that this is about our possessions that what God is asking us to do is impossible for us to do by ourselves. And number three, if we're able to do that with the help of the Holy Spirit, there is great reward. So then what is it, right? Is it the ultimate question? All right, what is it that we're supposed to do with our possessions? Is this a literal thing? Like, do we look at this literally? Are we, are we literally supposed to do what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do? And he specifically, I mean, Jesus, he said, sell all your possessions, give to the poor. And he walked away sorrowful. So you need to look at the whole counsel of scripture. Does this fit with the the whole wisdom of God? And we see other scriptures that speak to giving proportionately and giving the tithe, for example, and taking care of your family. And so it it doesn't really seem to fit with the whole counsel of scripture to just give everything. I mean, is it the same calling that he gave the disciples of leave your nets and follow me? I mean, it doesn't seem to fit the whole counsel of scripture there. Well, if it's not literal, is this calling figurative? And we, we already kind of talked about that. This isn't just a fill in the blank with whatever your issue is and give it over to God. So it's not figurative. And what we begin to see, thanks to the context, is that this is a spiritual issue that Christ is addressing. Now, a spiritual issue is not the same as a figurative issue. All right, a spiritual issue means that there is a spiritual, and by spiritual I mean supernatural, turning 
of the heart inside of you, that you are changed supernaturally, that you're the, the posture of your heart is shifted towards the upside-down kingdom in a way that it wasn't before. And it doesn't just shift, but it shows itself out in the way that you live in the physical world. So there's a spiritual turning and shifting and reposturing of the heart, so much so that it changes the way that you act. And this is where context is king. This is why I wanted to go through all the surrounding texts, because this is what the surrounding texts all agree with, is this is a spiritual issue that Christ is presenting to us. I mean, think about it. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, where the disciples say, who is the greatest? And Jesus responds, you need to become like a child. All right, this doesn't physically mean you're supposed to grow immature and shrink and become like an eight-year-old. It doesn't mean that. It means spiritually, your heart must be reshaped into the upside-down kingdom so that you are so humbled, which goes against the world's ways, upside-down upside down kingdom, and that you look to Abba Father as God is the one with the authority. God is the one with all the power. God the Father is the one with all the answers, and I am not. I am the child in this situation, and I'm not only going to be humble before God, but I'm going to rest in the fact that he is my father and that he is looking out for me, and he's like my daddy. When you spiritually become like that, it's going to show itself in the way that you live your life. I mean, look at the the next text in Matthew 18. It talks about cutting off your hand to avoid sin. It doesn't mean physically cutting off your hand. It doesn't mean physically plucking out your eye, but that you are so spiritually changed in your heart that you are willing to greatly inconvenience yourself to make sure that you are living a faithful and righteous lifestyle. Whatever that sin might be, that you are figuratively cutting off your hand, excuse me, spiritually cutting off your hand and turning the posture of your heart. The same way with forgiveness. Are you supposed to literally forgive somebody 490 times? And at 491, you're like, dunzo, you crossed the line. No more forgiveness. I checked the box. I did what Christ asked me to do. No, that there's a posture. It's not, it's, it's not, not a literal number, but the posture of your heart is changed so that you live a lifestyle of forgiveness. And it shows because Christ has forgiven you. So with all of these things in mind, what then is the spiritual application of how the believer is to be repostured towards their possessions? What Jesus is teaching here is a hard truth. What Jesus is teaching here is he's telling his disciples and every reader of Matthew that the reposturing of our heart towards our possessions says that the believer will look at all that they have, all that they possess, and say, this is not mine. This is God's. I didn't earn it. God gave it to me. It is not mine to use for my purposes, but is to, use, to be used for kingdom purposes. These are tools that God has loaned me to advance his cause. That's hard. It's impossible. The rich young ruler walked away when Christ called him to turn his back on his possessions. 
And spiritually, I don't believe that this is a literal thing of divesting all that you have, but in our heart of hearts to shape, to reposture ourselves towards the kingdom in the upside down world because the world says that's nonsense. You earned that, right? You worked for decades to acquire those things. You were smart. You tithed your money. You're not frivolous. You did the right thing. This is yours. Give your tithe to God and you're good. That we are called to change our posture towards our possessions. And that is a hard calling. To look at all that we have in such a way and say, this isn't mine. God has given it to me as a gift and it is to be used for his greater purposes. So how do we get there? You can hear that, right? And you can maybe high five and let's pray and wrap this thing up. How do you, how do you reposture your heart like that? Because this is, I mean, you look at all the surrounding examples and no, no other example does Jesus say this is impossible. No other example is something so extreme as the, as the camel going through the eye of the needle. But this particularly is a tough reading. I want to propose three things that the believer can do to reposture their heart. Number one, we need to pray. We need to pray. Now, it might sound like a Sunday school answer, but I don't think it's a, it's a it, it wasn't an accident that this body of teaching, chapter 18, chapters 18, 19, and 20, wraps up with the story of Jesus healing two blind men. We know that miracles in Scripture have two purposes. One, to validate Jesus as the Messiah. And two, to show physical actions that display a spiritual reality. Right? Jesus fed the 5,000. That was a physical miracle that Jesus did. But the spiritual reality is that Jesus is the bread of life, right? That Jesus physically raised Lazarus from the dead, but that wasn't just to raise a guy from the dead, is to show the spiritual reality that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so it's not ironic that there's a, a miracle story at the end of this body of teaching that has two blind men who cannot physically see that call out to Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And Jesus responds, what can I do for you? And they say, we want our eyes to be opened. We need to pray the same prayer. Because this is impossible for man. We can't do this by ourselves. We need Jesus, the Messiah, to open our eyes to see the things that we cannot see and that we cannot bear. So number one, we need to pray. God, help me to see what it means to reposture my heart towards your upside-down kingdom to be last as it pertains to my possessions so that I can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Number two, after we pray, I believe that we are called to wrestle with this because every single person in here is in a different situation, in a different boat. This is not a simple answer. And, you know, I studied and studied and studied this text and I kept wanting to have some clear, obvious box answer to, to give. And the other examples in the surrounding texts 
are all examples that demand of the believer, you need to figure out what this looks like in your life. You need to pray about it. You need to seek wise counsel. You need to talk to other believers who are further down the spiritual road than you are. But what does it look like to reposture your heart and your mind towards your possessions for the sake of furthering the kingdom? And you know what? If you're a middle schooler in here, you need to think about that. That applies to you. You have possessions. That applies to you. If you're mid-career, this is for you. If you're retired, this is for you. I like, to, I like to use the example of, and I heard this at one of our missions conferences, but we can take the truths and the principles of Scripture and they apply to us just like they apply to that Somali woman in a village that's all by herself that knows no other believers. And if she's reading Matthew 19, she needs to wrestle with this too. Every believer needs to wrestle with what God does this look like. Lord, show me what this looks like in my life. The thing is, with all of these examples in Matthew 18, 19, and 20, nobody, nobody stumbles into becoming like a child, right? Nobody stumbles into taking extreme measures to deal with their sin. Nobody stumbles into the default mode of forgiving somebody over and over and over who is sinning against you and they're not seeking your forgiveness. We don't do that naturally. And we don't naturally dispossess ourselves spiritually of all of our possessions. That goes against the world. And we are called to live opposite of the world. We can't get there without wrestling through what this means. So pray, number one. Number two, wrestle. And number three, we need to land. We need to come to a point of decision. And a a point of conviction of what this actually looks like. Because a spiritual change in the heart is always going to show itself out some way, somehow. You all know people who claim to have changed and they don't, right? We've seen it. A spiritual reposturing of the heart has a physical look to it. What does it look like for you? I don't know. But it does have a look to it. We've got to land that. Now, I think there's a lot of truth to this pray, wrestle, and land processing spiritually here as believers. But it's not just kind of three, three-point application. I think we see this in the life of Christ himself. Or he's not only the teacher and the preacher, but he's the example. He's the model that we are called to follow. And if you move forward in the book of Matthew to chapter 26, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion, where Jesus, where God the Father is calling Jesus to do something unbelievably difficult, perhaps impossible. And what does Jesus do? He prays, right? He prays to God, the Father. And what does he do? He wrestles with his calling. He says, if it's your will, take this cup from me. We see Jesus sweating blood because he is so overwhelmed with the task that he's been called to. He's wrestling with this thing. That's exactly what's happening. And as he's praying to God, he's wrestling with the reality of his calling in this upside down, first will be last, last will be first kingdom. 
But he doesn't end there with the wrestle. He lands the plane. What does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Now, when Christ died on the cross, he proved and showed himself to be the ultimate last one. Ultimate last one. All of his followers had left. His family wasn't around. The very people of God were chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And as Christ hung on the cross, even God the Father turned away from him and the sun went dark. He was last. He was last for us so that he could be first. What we see in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, is that Jesus, when he went to the cross, didn't have his head down and his shoulders bent. That Jesus didn't leave Gethsemane thinking, well, I guess it's just my lot to die and suffer. But rather, Jesus went to the cross for the glory set before him. In Philippians, it says, so that at the name of Jesus... Every tongue in the entire created order would confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee would drop in worship of the man, God, Jesus Christ. That his movement of being last propelled him to the place of being first as he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. And what Christ is calling us to in the story of the rich young ruler is not a life of woe, and I guess I got to give up my stuff, but a life of greater calling, a life that is a, a, a flashing neon sign that says, my kingdom is better, my kingdom is richer, my kingdom is fuller. My kingdom is everlasting upon everlasting. Come, follow me, and you will find more than you can fathom, than more than your mind can conceive and imagine. Come, follow me. And in Jesus' call to come follow him, he explains what that looks like all through scriptures, but particularly in chapters 18, 19, and 20 of Matthew. And even more particularly, what it looks like for the believer as we deal with our possessions. You know, as we move into the new year, oftentimes people have conversations about resolutions or precedents and this and that. And I've always thought it was a good idea to have renewal type conversations moving into the new year. It's a good time for refreshment. And in, in all honesty, as I study this text, I, the conviction in myself grew. And I was astonished at how hard it was to actually pray. God, open my eyes to see what this looks like. I didn't want to pray it. I'm not a wealthy man. <laughs> I didn't want to pray it. This is a hard calling. But it's not just a hard calling. It's something that Christ has enabled through his work on the cross. His kingdom is better. He has paved the way for all of us 
so that when we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to say, now that you're my child, let me show you how you are to live last in this world to enter into the next in this upside down kingdom. Church, let me encourage you as brothers and sisters in Christ to actually pray about this. Pray with somebody. So often when it's just me and my own conscience, it'll get shelved. But pray with somebody else about what this looks like as you wrestle and see what God would have you do in the reposturing of your heart towards your possessions for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to something greater. Father, that you have called us to conform ourselves to the likeness of Christ, and you not only give us instruction, you give us the model of Christ himself. Father, as we wrestle with this tough text and try to figure out what does this mean for me in my situation with my possessions, Father, may we hold loosely like a child, trust you as Abba, Father, and that we would submit to your will like Christ did in Gethsemane so that we can experience the rewards that you've promised and the eternal life that you've called us to as sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.